Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Jonathan Van Maren, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Many of you will remember the story of Terry Schiavo, the young woman uh, who was horribly, horribly starved to death in a Florida hospital when her estranged husband, Michael Schiavo, sought court permission to starve her and dehydrate her to death. Well, Bobby Schindler is Terry Schiavo's sister and was close to her for her entire life, as awfully short as that life turned out to be. He's now the president of the Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network and an associate scholar at the Charlotte Lozier Institute. He advocates for the medically vulnerable in honor of his sister, Terry Schiavo, and he is a full-time advocate, speaker, and writer. He is a member of the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities, and his writings have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Chicago Tribune, Time Magazine, the Lynn Acre Quarterly, National Review, Human Life Review, the Washington Times, and more. And again, I don't want to give you too many details of his story because we asked him to come on and share with us the story of Terry Schiavo. I remember this story unfolding vividly. Almost every American pro-life activist that I've spoken to about this story uh, still has borderline traumatic memories of this unfolding and has stories about what they tried to do or how they felt or how hard they prayed for Terry Schiavo uh, at this time. And so I really wanted to Uh, take the opportunity on this podcast to have Bobby Schindler on to talk about uh, his sister's life, his memories of her, and then, of course, what her case has taught us uh, about uh, the fight for life in America, what he's doing to ensure that more Terrys are not dying, and what the rest of us need to know about what's taking place in the United States around the world. And so Bobby Schindler was kind enough to agree to come on and tell the story. It's a it's a very difficult story for him to tell, as you can imagine, uh, because not only did he lose his sister, but he lost her horribly. Essentially, her, her own estranged husband, Uh, had her killed at the hands of the medical establishment. It's a horrifying story and one I think that we should remember and the one that we should learn from. And so without further introduction, this is my conversation with Terry Schiavo's brother, Bobby Schindler. Well, I guess just to to start at the beginning, um, just what was it like uh, to grow up with Terry? What was the the happiness before the story that that we're going to be getting to in a moment? Sure. Well, um, we grew up, uh, our family, where I was raised, uh, right outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, in a, sm- in a, a suburb. And, uh, it was my, my sister Terry was the, uh, firstborn. She was the oldest. Uh, and then I was, uh, I, I came next and then we were 13 months apart. So we were very close in, in age. And then, um, uh, about three years later, my younger sister Suzanne was born. So there was the three of us. And, we're a very close family. We're we're raised uh, Catholic. Went through the parochial school system, and um, just remember um, growing up that it was uh, um, we we didn't have it was just a, a very I guess we would describe it as a normal um, n- normal life growing up. I guess uh, we we didn't really uh, we grew up probably in a, in a middle class na- neighborhood, and my dad had a nine to five job. My mom stayed home and took care of us. Uh, so it was, uh, a lot of good memories. Uh, we had a lot of family that lived close by and they would come over for, uh, for all the holidays and birthdays. And, uh, it was just a great experience growing up. It was a lot of, a lot of fun, a lot of good memories. And, and Terry in particular, she was, she was a, um, she was shy growing up. She was, uh, a little overweight. Suzanne and myself were into sports. Terry was not really in, 
into playing sports. She spent most of her time uh, really becoming involved and, and um, uh, taking care of animals, whether they were our home uh, home pets or um, you know other other uh, uh, interest Terry had as far as learning about uh, animals and actually to the point where she was talking about wanting to be a veterinarian and, and working at a zoo. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember her saying that as a child, but she didn't have many friends. She had a couple of close girlfriends, and uh, but Terry always, uh, despite that she was the fact that she was shy. Uh, she was very close to her family, very close to her grandparents, in particular my mom's uh, parents. She had a great sense of humor. Uh, Terry was uh, always one that was always laughing, it seemed, in, in the house, uh, whether uh, it was at my dad's uh, corny jokes or or just, uh, you know, whatever, how easy it would to be to, to make Terry's laugh. I remember her, she had an infectious and a contagious laugh. So um, that was really... I guess, uh, uh, and the, the the thing about the, the the pet, she had such a passion uh, for for animals, right? Uh, that that um, um, you know, she uh, would often get very uh, very upset if if we if there was if she had come across, um, say for example, there was a um, an animal that she saw on the road that had been uh, hit by a car. Well, that that would. Seeing that would last last a long time for Terry, and she'd be very upset. So uh, uh, she was very sensitive to to animals, and um, and I, I guess that's why she um, had such an interest in wanting to help them when she got older. And so when uh, when she you know became a teenager and then eventually uh, began dating, when uh, when did Michael uh, Shivo show up on the scene? Sure. Well, t- Michael was really uh, t- Terry graduated high school, and she lost uh, some weight. Between high school and when she was going to community college up uh, Bucks County Community College, just outside of Philadelphia, and that's where she met Michael. And Michael was the first boy that she ever dated, and uh, I remember it was a very short period of time after they began dating that they were engaged, and and it was a very short time after they became engaged where they got married, and they were married in 1984 uh, in November. So Terry was just. Uh, uh, she was 20 years old uh, at the time when when she got married, and I believe Michael was the same age. So they were very young, and my parents uh, they didn't object to the marriage, but they did object. Uh, what what their concern was is that they were very young, and they recommended that they wait a few years and, and date longer. But of course, at that age, I guess uh, uh, kids always know better. So they right. they went ahead and got married anyway, and uh, were, were married in in a Catholic ceremony at our at our parish in, in Philadelphia, and. Um, and uh um you know it was uh it was um you know for us it was my sister getting married and you know leaving the house was all was all um, cuz we were so close Terry and I it was a uh, a sad time for me even though uh, she was very happy that she was getting married and met someone that that uh, cared for her at the time and and at the time everybody got along with Michael am I right Right. Well, uh, my my father Terry was married in 1984, as I mentioned, and then in 1986, my dad had a he, he owned a company uh, with another with a partner, and and he sold his his part of the company, and he really, he really relocated to Florida, uh, and he took my younger sister Suzanne and my mom, of course. I was still in college, so I stayed back in Philadelphia. But Terry and Michael, uh, when my dad decided to move, they they decided to move as well. So they they my father moved to St. Petersburg, Florida, and, and Terry and Michael. I uh, moved down there as well, and then after I graduated uh, college, I moved down in 1987. So by 1987, our entire family 
had relocated from just outside of Philadelphia to St. Petersburg. And, and you're right, at, at that time, everything was, was seemed to be fine. And, and Terry and Michael uh, were uh, newlyweds, essentially. And uh, my dad was semi-retired, and, and everything was good. And this was in 1987, but uh, it wasn't long after that when things started to deteriorate. So when did when did the whole nightmare begin? Right. Well, between eighty seven and ninety, there was a, there was um, there was problems starting to surface in, in, in Michael and Terry's wedding, and she shared that with me uh, specifically. She uh, uh, we, we saw Terry a lot because she did live close by. Michael was a uh, restaurant manager, so he worked nights. Terry worked days at an insurance uh, organization, so she would come over, and, and her and I in particular spent nights together. Uh, we would go off and go out. Uh, the two of us with with my friends, and because uh, we we're in our twenties, so we would go out and and do you know, what twenty year olds do at that that time, I guess. And so we 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 were very close, and she was sharing with me some of the marital problems that she was having with Michael. And the one thing she did tell me or ask me is not to share them with my parents because uh, she knew how upset my parents would be, and Terry was very protective of, of upsetting my parents. And and I, uh, you know, in hindsight, of twenty twenty, I, I I probably should have said something to my dad, not knowing. What eventually was going to happen, but but I didn't. I I told Terry I wouldn't, and I didn't. So, you know, I fast forward now to 1990, just three years after, three four years after Terry had been, you know, relocated relocated to Florida. Uh, it was February uh, 20 uh, 25th uh, 1990 when um, uh, I got a phone call from my father and said that he had heard he had just heard from Michael, and he, this was wee hours in the morning, and uh, it was a Saturday. Uh, going into a Sunday, and he said, uh, Michael, just call me. Something wrong with Terry. Get over there and see what's going on. I, I lived in the same apartment complex with Terry, so I was able to be there within minutes of uh, receiving that phone call. So I was over there, and and uh, that's when I, uh, when Michael opened the door, he was frantic, and that's when I found Terry on, on the floor uh, unconscious. Why uh, did she fall? I know that this is something that, uh, that that you've written about before, but what caused uh, Terry to collapse in the first place? Uh, to this day, we don't we don't know, Jonathan. Uh, it's unexplained. Uh, I don't know that we ever will know. Uh, there, there's a lot of suspicion uh, with what happened that night. There was never uh, a, a, a complete uh, police investigation, but there should have because of the, the nature of the age and and really. Um, I guess the condition of my sister, but there never was. So we, we really don't know what happened. All we know is, is what happened by Michael's account. Uh, and that seemed to have changed over the years of, of what caused my sister's collapse. But he said that um, he heard her collapse and hit the floor, and that's what woke him up. And, and he found Terry on the floor, and then he went over and called my dad. And then my dad called me. And my dad had to tell Michael to call 911 because... Uh, he did not do that until my dad instructed him to do so. So, uh, and that's how I found Terry unconscious. And I, I didn't, I wasn't particularly too concerned at the time. I had saw Terry just hours earlier and she was perfectly fine. And I thought perhaps she had just fainted, uh, um, and it wasn't anything to worry about, uh, until the paramedics got there right after I got there. And I knew almost immediately that there was something seriously wrong because, uh, I think almost right away they hit her with defibrillators and they probably did that another four, five, six times to try and get Terry's heart started because she was in pretty bad shape. And they must have worked on her for, uh, if I remember correctly, Jonathan, it was at least a half hour uh, before they were able to stabilize her, uh, find the pulse, and then transport her to a local hospital. 
And so where did things go from there? You got to the hospital and it was it was quite a long time for them to try to figure out what was wrong, whether or not um, Terry would survive uh, whatever had, had uh, preceded the collapse. So where did things go from there? Right, yeah, we we weren't sure. We, In fact, uh, we're, I was surprised by speaking with the paramedic that she survived the ride from the ambulance to, to the hospital. But nevertheless, she did survive. And in those first initial hours and days, Kelly was in bad shape. She was... Uh, and I mean, everything that they needed to keep her alive was being used. Uh, and I believe she was, uh, described then initially as being in a coma, but it was within the first two weeks, Terry improved, uh, I guess for, for how it was just initially, she improved rapidly to the point where there was nothing else supporting her other than a feeding tube because she had difficulty swallowing, uh, because of her brain injury. So she needed a feeding tube and she was, opening her eyes, and she seemed to be improving, um, as I said, pr- pretty quickly, uh, you know, within those first few weeks uh, or a month or two. And then it wasn't, it was a short time after that that we were able to get her transferred to a rehabilitation unit to to try and, and help her with uh, her brain injury. She did have a, a serious brain injury. Uh, the, the doctors weren't very hopeful at her prognosis, but nevertheless, uh, she was improving enough that she was a candidate to be sent to a rehab uh, center. So that's what we did. And and, um, and from there, uh, Terry was responding to the rehabilitation therapy she was receiving. So that's kind of the, the timeline, Jonathan. Within a, the first few months of her initial collapse, she improved enough where she didn't need any types of machines keeping her alive. She was not on a ventilator. She was only uh, receiving a feeding tube. Uh, she could be transported anywhere with, with a wheelchair. And she was at a rehab center uh, getting mm-hmm. therapy and uh, rehabilitation to try and improve her, her brain injury. Michael was her guardian. Uh, he was appointed by the court as her guardian. So he had 100% decision-making power uh, as far as Terry's medical decisions and care. And my parents essentially had none. But but as we said uh, earlier, um, this wasn't a problem, at least initially, because my parents and Michael were working together to try to get Terry the best help possible at that time. What was the prognosis of of her brain injury? So I know you said they, they they still don't know exactly what caused it, but when she arrived at the rehabilitation center, could you just sort of describe what her medical condition would have been at that point in terms of of how her brain was functioning and things like that? Right. Well, she went she went several minutes without oxygen to the brain as a consequence of her collapse, and that's why she she experienced you know extensive brain uh, brain injury. Uh, but, but often with brain injuries, doctors just don't know. I mean, they can look at CAT scans, they can look at the, um, uh, the medical, or whatever test they, they, at the time that they conducted on my sister, they, they're able to see that she did it, she did experience extensive brain injury, but, um, but they could, someone, you can't, you can't, you know, reading about brain injury all these years now, the one thing I'm learning is, uh, you, you you really can't tell with 100% certainty how a person is going to respond to rehabilitation therapy. So um, although Terry did have um, a serious brain injury, doctors were hopeful because of the signs that they saw um, that she would improve if given aggressive therapy and rehabilitation. And she did, Jonathan. I mean, she did just that. She was starting to form words uh, from the rehab uh, and, and therapy she was receiving and doctors were hopeful that she, with continued rehabilitation therapy, she would continue to improve. To one extent, we we didn't know. I mean, there's our, our family. We, you know, once we 
came to terms with the fact that Tyler was never going to be the same, uh, chances we, we knew that the, the chances were that she was never going to uh, retain full function of her because of her brain injury. But we but we were very hopeful that she was going to at least improve from the condition that she was that she was in. Um, to what point we didn't know, but but we were just pleased with the, the progress she was making, at least with the initial rehabilitation therapy. When did the trouble begin uh, between your family and Michael? Okay, just uh, so the, the, the timeline now. We're, we're with rehab, rehabilitation therapy. We're in like we're in we're in one. Right. And and simultaneously at that time, while Terry was getting this rehabilitation therapy, Michael had a, a lawsuit that he um, uh, against the uh, Terry's treating physician and gynecologist prior to collapse, and he and he basically was blaming them for Terry's collapse, and he was suing for. $20 million for Terry's lifelong rehabilitation therapy and care. Uh, so the, there was a trial in 1990. Uh, it was late night. It was in 1992 in November. Mm-hmm. The jury came back with a verdict where they awarded, uh, they awarded Terry a medical trust fund, monies for American, monies for an Amer- uh, a medical trust fund for about a million and a half dollars. And Michael lost a consortium, uh, was awarded about $600,000. So, so there was money that was put into a trust for Terry's, what we thought was her rehabilitation therapy, uh, almost a million and a half dollars, and Michael walked away with a considerable amount of money himself. And and it was shortly after that that everything changed, Jonathan, and that's when there was a shift in Michael's, um, uh, his, his, his really his promise to continue caring for Terry and offer her rehabilitation therapy, that he not only promised Terry, my family, and the jury, uh, but Terry and my family, but also the jury in the malpractice uh, lawsuit. But uh, he reneged on this, and, and really it was in 1992 when he went on a, he started his pursuit to end Terry's life. And what was that, that, that shift like for your family? Because I know uh, you've written before that, that it was totally unexpected when it took place. And, and throughout the beginning of this, of course, uh, you know, you all had Michael had been on the same page. So what was it like experiencing that shift? What did it look like? It, we were, well, it was a shock. We were blindsided. We never expected Michael to, to do this. Uh, and we didn't know what was motivating him at the time. But we come to find out that he had met, met another woman and he was actually living with this woman. And we found out later that he, that he asked, asked, asked her to marry him sometime in the 1992, 1993 range, I believe, if I remember correctly, or short there, shortly thereafter. And then the money, the money would would have gone upon Terry's death. Michael would have received her medical trust fund because he was her husband. So, so now things became became a little clearer to our family while he was doing this. Uh, he had the woman he was living with who he was going to marry, and then the money he would have inherited upon Terry's death. So now we kind of saw what was happening, and and that that's really what we attributed to, to Michael's change and, and his loyalties really from from Terry to uh, to I guess this new life he was starting. What were the conversations with him like at that stage? Because you guys had had a personal relationship for for many many years by this point, right? There was there were several, Jonathan. Uh, uh, my dad confronted Michael. Uh, I believe it was in uh, shortly thereafter when um, when he when my my family when Michael made it known that he was going to stop rehabilitation and therapy, and my dad confronted him. I, ironically enough, it was on Valentine's Day in 1993, and that's when Michael basically uh, severed the relationship with my family, and and we had to, uh, we were no longer receiving any information from Michael. We had to get it in other ways, 
uh, through the nurses and the people that were caring for Terry at the nursing home where she was being cared for at the time. So um, there was really no conversations, and it wasn't until and then there was some and, and that's what really started some some legal battles then because my parents were trying to remove Michael as guardian. They were unsuccessful, and and it was a night and, and Michael had um actually tried to end Terry's life uh, in 1993 in the summer, just a few months after this confrontation with my parents by withholding antibiotics for a UT infection that Terry had that would have killed her. But they, the nursing home said no, uh, they weren't allowed to do that. So um, so essentially Michael uh, petitioned, uh, sent a letter to my family. He retained a lawyer, and it was in 1997, 1998, that my family received a letter uh, and telling them that Michael was going to petition the Florida court, the, the um, circuit court, to uh, have Terry's feeding tube removed. The thing that, that I can never fully understand is when somebody's not on a ventilator, they're breathing on their own, they're obviously alive, uh, I still don't understand how a feeding tube can be considered extraordinary care when the alternative is is starving some someone to death. It just seems so incredibly cruel, and it takes your opinion of somebody like Michael uh, of thinking, okay, they're a bad person tempted by bad things to... You know, how how could you do something like this? So for the listeners who, who don't understand this, um, or I've never heard of it, um, why was it legal to remove a feeding tube when the, you could like breathe and live on your own? You didn't need a ventilator. It was just the feeding tube needed to keep you alive. How was it legal to, to, to get this removed? Right. Well, that's a great question and something that confronted my family at the time as well because it didn't make sense to us either, and it doesn't make sense today. Uh, because you're right, the, Terry was not terminal, she wasn't in a coma, she wasn't brain dead. In fact, she was very responsive and improving. But that, that shouldn't even matter, though, uh, Jonathan. The fact is, is that Terry was not terminal, she wasn't dying. And the only thing that was keeping her alive was food and hydration through a feeding tube. And it was, it was once determined, or was once classified as basic and ordinary care. But there was a shift in our, in our legal system and, 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 Basically, where a shift in, in the way, uh, let me say it this way, there was a shift in, in, the re, in how we, we classify food and water through feeding tubes. And it is now considered artificial life support, extraordinary care, or, med- or, or even worse, I guess, if you want to list them that way, as medical treatment. So uh, because of this reclassification, uh, it's legal now in all 50 states to either deny or withdraw food and hydration from a person, um, even in situations where they're not dying and, and it's the only thing keeping them alive, uh, which is the same thing that keeps us all alive. So a lot of times people just have difficulty swallowing, whether it's for a short period of time or something of longer duration, but nevertheless, uh, feeding tubes, because they are now considered medical treatment, depending on what state you live in, uh, can be quite easy to either remove it or, um, either deny it or withdraw from, from a, uh, from a disabled person or someone that's unable to speak for themselves. And uh, just just uh, for clarification, the Catholic Church does not recognize feeding, feeding tubes as extraordinary care, uh, generally speaking, um, particularly if someone is not dying and, and is able to assimilate or metabolize uh, food and hydration through the feeding tubes. Uh, the Catholic Church sees this as ordinary care, basic care, needed care, and we are morally obligated to provide it for, for persons uh, uh, and my sister's situation was a perfect example of where it is, is against the teachings of the church to uh, to take a feeding tube for the purpose of killing a person um, in those circumstances. 
So this brings us to the the the, the battle that <clears throat> the rest of America got introduced to. Um, I was I was I was still a kid when this story was going on, but I remember reading about the Terry Schiavo case in the Time magazine. The Canadian newspapers were all following it with bated breath. You know, people around the world were were, were following this case. And the, the genesis of that the case becoming a major public story that everybody got involved in can be traced to um, him, him suing to have the feeding tubes removed or petitioning, I should say. So give us a timeline of that. So that's he, he alerted your family to the fact that he wanted to do this. And how did your, your family respond and how did things go from there? Well, we, we uh, as I mentioned, we received a letter from Michael's attorney. Uh, it was in 97 or 98. Uh, so that would be seven, eight years after the initial collapse and our family was uh, shocked. So we went out and, uh, of course we wouldn't even, we would never even for a, for a moment ever think to, to take away Terry's food and hydration. Um, so we, we retained an attorney and, and we, we began the fight and, uh, the, the tr- for, I guess there was two, three years of, of legal wrangling back and forth. There was actually a guardian item that was appointed to investigate the merits of Michael's petition to remove his, her food and hydration and came back with a report recommending not to remove the food and the feeding tube, not to remove it. And it was based on what he would describe as significant conflicts of interest on Michael's part. Uh, the fact that he was, he was living with another woman, the fact that um, the fact that he was going to inherit this money upon Terry's death, and also uh, the basis of Michael's petition, was, which was that Terry had expressed to him before her collapse that if she was ever in this type of condition that she would want to die. Well, interestingly enough, uh, this was hearsay ev- evidence. Michael never mentioned this to anybody until almost eight years after Terry's collapse. So the, ra- the veracity of these comments that he claims Terry made were at, were in question. Uh, but nevertheless, um, uh, Michael went to the, to the court, even though the guardian ad litem recommended that the uh, feeding tube remain in, went to the court, and there was a week-long trial. And this began in 2000, and Michael uh, had approved two things. One, that Terry wanted to die, that these were Terry's wishes, and the other was that she was in a persistent vegetative state, which is a uh, medical condition that basically says that the person has really no chance at at any type of recovery, uh, meaningful recovery. So if Michael was able to prove these two things uh, during the trial, then then the judge, um, then it would be up to the judge to decide whether or not uh, to to rule to to remain for Terry's feeding tube to remain in, or if if he would grant Michael the, the permission to remove Terry's feeding tube. And this is when uh, the story started getting attention, right? Because one of the things I've I've always found strange, and and I've read a, I've read the books uh, on this, including the one um, that your family collaborated on. One of the things that's always struck me as fundamentally strange is just I don't know a lot of young couples in their 20s who discuss what they would wish if they ended up in a persistent vegetative state, um, especially not if they, if they didn't have prior health problems. It isn't the sort of thing that most couples in, in their 20s um, end up having a discussion about, which sort of lends dubiousness to the story. Um, how how did things how did things go from there? Because this this situation got political really quickly, and that's when the rest of us essentially started hearing about the nightmare that was unfolding. Right. Well, during the trial in two thousand, it began January two thousand, um, uh, and lasts about a week. And uh, yeah, my, Michael had approved that that 
Terry had no advanced directive. There was nothing in writing that Terry ever made. And then you're right. I mean, she was in her 20s. And even to this day, even though the publicity of all of these types of cases, I, I don't know how many people have gone out and, 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 uh, completed an advanced directive, but there wasn't any. So Michael was going on this hearsay evidence, uh, that, that he stated Terry wanted to die and that he said that she made to him before her collapse. Uh, quite candidly, uh, Jonathan, to this day, I believe Michael perjured himself because the only way that he could petition the court is if, if by his claim that Terry made these wishes that she wanted to die. So they never, as I mentioned earlier, they never surfaced for eight years, uh, and, and Michael needed this to go to the court. So uh, I believe he perjured himself, uh, making this, fabricating this notion that Terry wanted to die. Uh, but nevertheless, it, it convinced, he convinced the judge, his attorney convinced the judge. He also, uh, um, asked his, uh, his brother and sister-in-law to corroborate these comments, which they did. Uh, and the judge ruled in his favor. This was despite the fact that our family testified, some of Terry's closest friends testified that Terry never even mentioned anything like this in all the years that we knew her. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was starting, it was starting then, uh, Jonathan to gain some local attention. Uh, but it wasn't really for another year or so before it really started to snowball because of some of the circumstances of Terry's case. Um, where it started to receive, uh, more of a, na- more national attention. And then eventually just, uh, it escalated to the point where it received, uh, international attention during the five years that my family was fighting to save her life. Describe that fight for us. What did, what did that look like? I have some, some details I, I'd like to ask you about, but before then, for our listeners who are unfamiliar with the story, cause I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm young enough that I was pretty small when I read about the story, but I'm old enough that I remember it quite clearly. But we have a lot of listeners who won't be aware of the sort of epic fight that that began and then unfolded over the following five years. So give us give us a sense of, of what took place over those five years. Sure. I mean, there was no social media back then. And, and uh, so all this kind of escalated. Mostly, I would say, I would attribute it to, to Glenn Beck with conservative radio and I'd have to say that he's responsible for this kind of snowballing the way it did. But after the initial ruling uh, that the judge made that permitting Michael to remove uh, Terry's feeding tube, our family was was shocked, as you can imagine, that the judge ruled in favor of Michael, particularly with all these conflicts of interest that existed. But nevertheless, you know, we, we decided as a family that we were going to do everything we could to fight against this happening. So uh, legally, we did everything possible to... Um, to stop this, and uh, it was right. There's so much. <laughs> this case, it was um, the first time Terry. After the the first set of appeals were exhausted, Terry's feeding tube was removed, and we were able to find some evidence uh, that 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 really cast a doubt on Michael's testimony that Terry wanted to die, and we presented this. And and what happened was our attorneys uh, sued Michael civilly. civilly and this was enough to get another judge, not the original judge, Judge Greer, who ruled in favor of Michael. This was in a probate court. We're able to civilly get Terry's, uh, because of, uh, these, this evidence that we brought to this new judge in the civil case, we're able to get Terry's seem to reinsert it. And this happened about, a, if I remember correctly, about a year after the initial ruling. So with this, it started to gain more attention and it caught the attention of Glenn Beck, who was a local, uh, a local Tampa, this was all happening in the St. Petersburg, Tampa area. He was a local uh, radio conservative talk show host 
in that area locally, and, and he caught his attention. So he started covering Terry's case back then, almost on a daily basis, Jonathan. He was really intrigued by this. He was actually on the other side initially. Right. And then after he did some research, realized, I guess, uh, what was happening, uh, stuff that, uh, things that the media wasn't, either was not given you know, the full story or, or things they were admitting about the situation. So he started advocating for us. And then what happened, Jonathan, Glenn Beck went from a local talk show host to a national talk show host. And when he did this, he, he had a national audience, and he brought Terry's case with him. He, he did not stop talking about it. In fact, he was he, he seemed dedicated to helping my sister. Not seemed, he was dedicated to helping my sister. And he really started putting pressure on Governor Bush to intervene and do something, and which eventually is what happened. Um, and this was, this was back, this was around 2002 and Terry's feeding tube was removed for a second time. And, and it was then because of the enormous pressure that was being put on Jeb Bush and the legislature, Florida legislature at the time, they were actually able to intervene and create a new law that was able to re, to reinsert Terry's feeding tube the second time. And this had been after about seven days of it being removed. So, once, and I'm going kind of, kind of leaving a lot of details out mm-hmm. and going quickly through this, but after the second time now that Terry's feeding tube was reinserted, it really started really snowballing and picking up a lot of attention. And that's when, uh, things got really crazy. I say around 2003 or so. Right. When we were just getting inundated with, um, all types of media, um, requests and, and just anything you can imagine that were, that was because of the, 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 the case getting the attention that it was. Uh, I mean, we had to go out and, and find people that could help us handle really a, a lot of the media calls that were happening because Jeb was, Jeb Bush was now involved and, and then, uh, and then Michael subsequently sued Jeb Bush and, and, and that's what started a whole new set of, uh, legal, um, you know, uh, legal fights for my family and, and now for Jeb Bush who interviewed on my sister's behalf. So let's 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 look at that for a minute because that's an interesting aspect of of the story and an unexpected one. When, how did, how did Jeb Bush get involved in, in in Terry's case? It was really again it was Glenn Glenn Beck talking about the case and asking people to contact the Florida legislature to do something, and that's essentially what happened. I mean, just generally speaking, I mean there are other dynamics involved here. Uh, but essentially there was so much pressure that was being put on the Florida legislatures to do something. They passed a law that Governor Bush signed that was a, that would be a, uh, basically it acted as a temporary restraining order. Um, and they were able to reinsert Terry's feeding tube based on this. Uh, so that's the best way I can explain it, uh, Jonathan, is just because so many people were now learning about Terry's case and wanted to help. They, 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 couldn't make sense out of the fact that Michael was living with another woman, had another family, essentially, because uh, I believe at this time he had, he had one child now with this woman. And the fact that there was my parents, there was, there was Terry's family that was standing by and willing and wanting to care for her, plus a lot of the information we were putting out on our website and in other ways through Glenn Beck and others now, that was really, um, uh, that was, that was, uh, it was contrary to what was being reported by the media and by what Michael and his attorney were saying. So people saw this and they became outraged and they wanted 
someone to do something, so they turned to the governor. Uh, the, the, the people felt, if I remember correctly at the time, they felt if, if someone in death row with all these questions about, and, and, and I didn't even mention the questions now that were surfacing about Terry's brain injury and her condition and, and, and her chances at recovery, they felt if the governor can intervene and save someone in death row, why can't he intervene and save an innocent disabled woman? And, and that's kind of essentially why so many people got involved and essentially the uh, Florida legislatures got involved. Uh, did you talk to uh, to Governor Bush and President Bush personally? Well, this was prior to, to President Bush getting involved. But yes, we we met with with uh, Governor Bush uh, on a couple occasions. Uh, he, he I I really liked Governor Bush. He seemed very sincere that he wanted to help. Uh, every every time we we did speak with him, and and he was at the time. He seemed very, uh, very willing and wanting to, to stop this from happening. He he saw a lot of the facts that weren't being reported in the media uh, that that our attorneys were were giving to him and some of the doctors' um, examinations that were that we were giving to him to show the fact that Terry was a good candidate for future uh, therapy and rehabilitation and, and just so many other things. But I think as a father, Governor Bush saw what was happening and, and he felt. Um, he just felt inclined or uh, determined to, to try and help, and and he did it. He did it within the the, uh, the parameters of the law, uh, which um, um, you know by by passing, getting the legislatures to to create that law that he was able to sign. But nevertheless, he was um, you know he was uh, uh, very sincere and and I think really wanting to, to stop this from happening at the time. One of the things I did want to ask you, because I've heard other pro-life activists say that they thought the Bush brothers, so President Bush and Governor Bush, uh, didn't do enough for Terry, that they backed down when they shouldn't have, things like that. And so I just, uh, and, and, and Michael Schiavo uh, wrote a whole column in, in or uh, was interviewed for a column in 2016, um, raging against how much he hated Jeb Bush for, for, for everything that you just described. Um, as a member of the family who was actually there and actually speaking with the Bush brothers, what was what's your take on what they were willing to do and how they helped your family? Yeah, well, I, I right, a lot of those questions were raised uh, at the time, and I've I've had attorneys that that I uh, trust on both sides of the issue that that explained to me why and why not why and. Governor Bush could have done more, and why he could not have done more. Uh, same with President Bush. So, you know, it's, it's hard question for me to answer, uh, Jonathan. Uh, I honestly, I don't know. Um, uh, you, you would probably find the same. You'd probably find attorneys that would convince you that they both could have done something more. You probably can find attorneys to convince you that they could not have done more. Uh, I just like to think that if they could have, they would have. And, and I don't know any other way to answer that. Um, but, but as I said. But I, I did. I never got. I never had the chance to, to meet President Bush, but but I did meet Governor Bush on several occasions, and he he generally generally genuine genuinely came across as sincere and wanting to help. Mm-hmm. Well, so the the newspapers years later, this was two uh, two or three years ago, reported in their article about Michael Shivo that one of the reasons that you know Jeb Bush was clearly doing this because he was a religious fanatic is because he prayed so incessantly over the case. Um, which they included that detail to mock him, but I thought it was was it was a detail that actually you know encouraged me in thinking the best about his motives. Right, and he and he is a, he is a Catholic convert, uh, uh, Governor Bush. But but Michael was vilifying anybody that was uh, advocating or trying to help my sister. Um, so it wasn't anything that Michael had said at the time didn't surprise me. 
and, and he was, you know, I know he was getting his talking points from his attorney. Uh, and, and Michael never spoke uh, at the time without his attorney next to him, which was always kind of curious to me. Uh, but, but yeah, they would, they would, they would say over and over again that, that the government is infringing on a private family matter. Well, that was kind of, uh, didn't make sense to me because Michael made it a public matter when he petitioned the court to remove Terry's food and hydration. And, and it was our family that was reaching out to the politicians, anyone we could at the time to try and, try and get, you know, Terry to help it, to stop this from happening. So our family didn't, didn't, we, it wasn't a private family matter to us anymore. We were publicly doing everything we could and asking people to help us. So it just didn't make sense when Mike kept saying that they're involved, they're intervening in a private family matter. It wasn't anything private at all. And it, and it was really Michael's actions that, that it became a public matter in the first place. There was one moment, um, uh, like sort of the climax of the, the standoff between the government and Michael Shiva and his attorneys where, where the National Guard was almost sent in to to reinsert the feeding tube, uh, how did that all how did that all come about? Right, I, I heard about this after the fact, and uh, you're right. I, I had heard that they're on their way, and and I, and something happened. Uh, and and I don't, gosh, Jonathan, I, I wish I had a better uh, answer for you, but uh, Michael's attorney did something, and and I guess it set off. Um, uh, it, it stopped. I guess because of what the attorney did, uh, Governor Bush thought otherwise with what he did uh, as far as sending the National Guard. And, and I don't remember exactly what those details are, but but you're right. He, my understanding is that the National Guard was on its way, and then, then they were told to stop. And um, yeah, well, it was, who knows it, what would have happened. It's, it was quite dramatic. The reason that the National Guard got pulled back based on, on the research that, that I did and the reading I did was that um, the police were by were at the hospital, and essentially there was no way. Uh, like there could have been violence between two, you know, government agencies, and that's why the the National Guard was 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 told to pull back. But it was really an exceptional scene. Um, the 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 idea that you know you got two a government armed government agencies facing off over the fate of of, of a disabled woman. It was just quite. Um, in some ways, it was encouraging that a case like that was getting that much attention, at least, um, that there were people that were willing to fight that hard. I, I always found that aspect of the story encouraging. Right, and, and yeah, I believe you're right, and I, I don't know that there would have been, uh, a, a, it would have raised to the level of violence among the two, uh, but, you know, but I, I guess Governor, Governor Bush didn't want to take a chance, and that's why he... He called back the National Guard, but yeah, it was the, the whole thing. Quite honestly, uh, Jonathan, during those two weeks of Terry's death was surreal. I mean, we were getting, I mean, we were getting. Uh, I guess someone we had gotten word that the militia was on their way to go in and take some militia from Australia was on their way to come in and 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 get Terry and take her in protective custody. And I had the FBI come up to me and ask me if I was behind it and uh, <laughs> all kinds of. Cr- just crazy things were happening during that time. It, it just was. It, it escalated to. to uh, it escalated to the. I, I just. You know, it was. It was hard. I mean, you're in this world, and, and the only thing you're focused on is is getting your sister help. And my parents were only focused on stopping this from happening. But there's this stuff happening all around us that we didn't even know about until you know, days or weeks afterwards that, that things were happening. Uh, just because. 
of how, how much publicity Terry's case was getting at the time. When was when was the feeding tube taken out after all legal options had been exhausted? It was March 18, 2005, and then Terry died uh, almost 14 days, two weeks after after it was initially removed. And I I know this is is very very difficult to talk about but what was what was those two weeks like uh, it was it was uh it was terrible i i guess initially uh i was still doing i was still traveling and lobbying i was in tallahassee we're trying to get some uh, a law passed to help um you know to reinsert terry's feeding tube again uh i had just gone back from dc congress was involved and uh, at that time and they were also trying to find ways to, to help my sister and stop this from happening. And it was really a bipartisan effort for the most part that, that the media never reports accurately even to this day. So, but, but, um, you know, I, I think I, if I remember correctly, I got there maybe the second or third day after Terry's feeding tube was removed. And it's, it's just hard to describe Jonathan walking into a room and watching a human being, watching your sister, my parents having to watch a daughter, slowly die by the lack of food and hydration. And, um, you know, I think it was just a three, four, five days before Terry's death. And of course we didn't know when she was going to die, but, but she was, she was deteriorating to the point where it's becoming so difficult to see her and so grotesque physically that, that we just told my mom that we didn't want her to go see her anymore. It was just too hard. And my mom was just having too much of a difficult time seeing her daughter die this way. And, uh, it's just, I mean, I don't want to get real graphic, but just imagine, I mean, the only thing I can compare it to is pictures that you would see of those that were being starved and dehydrated at the concentration camps. But they're pictures. I mean, when you see this up, up in person and when you see it happening to a loved one, it's, it's indescribable to explain, indescribable to, to, to tell you. It's just hard to describe watching someone deteriorate this way and um uh but the the the, the tragic though thing about it jonathan is it's happening every single day i mean this is legal and we're doing it to, to people across countless healthcare facilities not only in our country but globally and it's just uh i don't understand it it wasn't too long ago that to do this would have been illegal uh barbaric and humane but yet we're doing it routinely today you described her at at different points um, as skeletal, emaciated. It was just very obvious that she was being starved and dehydrated to death. And I guess the thing that I have a hard time wrapping my head around is 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 to many people um, who have never seen it and, and and don't really think about what that would look like. It it makes sense that this, this is not an issue that they care about or that they think about much. But what about for the medical professionals who actually watch them waste away? How do they justify what's being done? How how can they say that this is a humane response when they know they're starving somebody to death? I guess I don't understand what the justification for that is. Even the self justification in the minds of the medical professionals who are carrying this out. Well, they you'll read that. People like Terry, they're in these types of uh, brain injuries. They don't feel it. They have no consciousness. They don't know that they're being starved and dehydrated to death. And even people that are being starved and dehydrated to death, it's my understanding, they believe it's a, it's a peaceful and painless way to die. I guess you 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 reach the point where it, it's something you don't you don't feel anymore. If that's the way to describe it. But from the experience of having watching Terry die this way, it's anything but. And, and I don't know how they know that. How they 
they can actually, I mean, there's accounts of people that have survived starvation and dehydration. Uh, uh, Kate Adamson, for one, who was in a locked-in state, and for seven days she went without food and water, and she said it was excruciating. She can't even describe the indescribable pain that she went through because of a lack of food and, and, and water. So I, I, I don't know how the medical um, profession, you're right, I don't know how they justify this uh, or rationalize it. Uh, but but how do we rationalize and justify abortion? I mean, right. it's the same. It's all intertwined. I mean, we we see we see pictures of an aborted baby, and somehow we're able to rationalize and justify that that act of violence. And, and we do the same for people that that we kill by starvation and dehydration. Was Terry responding at all to your family in those last weeks? No, absolutely, uh, absolutely. I mean, Terry's been responding, responsive really since she emerged in those first few weeks from her, I guess, her coma. Uh, and, and I, there's no telling if Terry, Terry was abandoned in warehouse basically from 1992 on. She was receiving, the only, the only stimulation she was receiving was from people that would touch her, that would come in and, and just spend time with her. Uh, but the one thing, and we're learning this more and more today in, in, in brain research, the one thing people like my sister need more than anything, is is constant therapy and rehabilitation. That was the one thing she was denied. So it's no wonder that Terry deteriorated the way she did. But even even the even the fact that she was receiving no stimulation, no really no meaningful stimulation as far as therapy and rehabilitation, she was still responsive. And there's no telling if she was being cared for properly how much progress she should have, she could have made. But, you know, Jonathan, I just want to make it clear that it didn't matter, it didn't matter to my family. Terry was a, a, a human being with, um, with dignity. Uh, she had inherent worth and we loved her just the way she was, whether she improved, uh, nothing, you know, if she didn't improve at all or she improved a little, it didn't matter to my family. But it's just, it's just, it's just tragic that she was treated so inhumanely. Uh, for for so many years by not giving therapy and the money was there for it. I mean, Michael, Michael, and that medical that medical malpractice uh, um, lawsuit that it, that he that he was successful at least for the money he received. The money was there for Terry's therapy and rehabilitation. It was never used for that. It was used instead to kill her. What was the aftermath of all this like for your family? Uh, well. That's a good question. I, I, our family, we probably should have taken some time, but it was almost immediately that we we decided to to establish the, the nonprofit that we that exists today, and we've been working for from um, over for about fourteen years now, uh, advocating for other families. But um, it was very difficult. We wrote a book within the first year of, of Terry's collapse because we we really felt we wanted to get a lot of the facts. Uh, much of what the repeated the media wasn't reporting, and so we wrote it. Uh, we wanted to tell a story. I think that wasn't being shared with the public. So we wrote a book and uh, and we started a foundation. And we probably didn't take the time we needed to to uh, to really. Um, I guess if you want to use the word grieve uh, grieve Terry's death, but th- those first few years were very difficult for our family, uh, and just coming to terms with what happened. When was the last time you had con- that your family had contact with Michael Schiavo? Well, I guess it was back in 
during the trial in, in, in 2000, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, I guess it was 2000, Jonathan, um, was the last time that, um, yeah, that we had any type of discussion with him, uh, trying to get him to, uh, to stop what he was doing, which was uh, obviously un- unsuccessful. But, uh, uh, and then I've said, I've, I've said in different interviews that I'm more than willing if, to, I, I would be more than willing. I, I often tell people we just need to pray for Michael that he, um, that he has a conversion because he could, he could be a very powerful voice, you know, advocating for people like Terry because they're, they're, they're really in the crosshairs of, of this, uh, what we like to call culture of death and, you know, protections for these people are being taken away, what seems like daily and, they really are vulnerable to our medical system today. Um, so uh, it's, it's, it seems to be there's there there does seem to me to be such a contrast because I've I've talked to you several times, um, and and your family is you know just fighting for what you know is right. You have you have the foundation that works to save other people in Terry's situation, but then you you read Michael Schiavo's interviews or, or listen to his interviews, and he's still so angry all these years later, even though he. Um, I guess by what he claims he wanted, he won, um, and he, you know, he got his way, and Terry had her feeding tube removed, and he's still so angry, which doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Yeah, it's a great point. I, I say the same thing, Jonathan. Uh, I don't understand it either. I don't know why he's still so angry. Uh, he did an interview not that long ago. I, I, was it last year or a couple years ago when Jeb Bush announces candidacy for president, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I noticed the same thing. I watched it and he's just, he's, he's still harboring a lot of anger. And, uh, yeah, I don't, I can't explain it. So, um, I, yeah, essentially he, he was, he, he was successful and, and having my sister killed and, but yet he still holds on to a lot of anger. So not quite sure why, but, but we try to focus. I don't really pay much attention to Michael, uh, and what he's doing. Um, and we just try to focus on helping family because there's a lot of families suffering out there. They're going mm-hmm. through what our family went through, and they're not getting the treatment that that they want for their loved one or the care. And, and they're fighting. It's not so much they're fighting spouses like we did in, in Terry's situation. Now they're fighting healthcare you know, commissions and ethics committees and insurance companies. And and it's it's just it's, it's become a real problem in our healthcare system today. Not not all. I mean, there's some great facilities out there. There's some great doctors, but. Uh, but it seems to me there's this growing problem where uh, we, we we don't view life the way we used to. Uh, it, it's now kind of spilled over into um, people with brain injuries, the elderly. It started with abortion, and now we're we're seeing it with uh, with the vulnerable, the medically vulnerable. And uh, it's just it's a real attack on life, the dignity, the human human dignity, and and we are now you know, well, you know what's going on. We're mm-hmm. we're deciding. The worth of a person, and it's become a subjective uh, determination on on whether someone has value or not. And then we're deciding based on that whether they should live or die. And we're dealing with this more and more every day. And it's becoming increasingly more difficult to uh, to help people people that that need that need help and and have a reasonable chance of recovery. Final question for you then would be: What do you want people to know about Terry's story? Remember about Terry's story, and then just tell us a bit about the work that you're doing in her memory and tell me where they can find, uh, find your work, follow your work. Um, cause yeah, it's a lot of people haven't heard about these situations before, but they, they really do need to be aware of what's going on. Right. Well, if you go to life that's our website. Uh, you can learn a lot of information there. You can go to uh, Facebook, Terry Shiloh life and hope network, and you can look us up there. We, 
we do what we can to raise awareness and educate the people. We post stories and the cases. We, we've been involved in a lot of cases over the years. Uh, I would say the one thing I like to remember, for people to remember is one, don't, 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 if you read accounts of Terry's story in the media, you really need to go other sources to, to find the truth about Terry's case. The media still distorts her case. They, they, they really, and in fact, there was just an article in the New Yorker just this past week that, that really attacked my parents, the Bushes, everybody that was supporting Terry. Um, uh, so it, you know, that stuff's happening all the time. It's ongoing. So I would tell people if they want to learn about Terry's case, don't go to Wikipedia. You got to find other sources, go to our website and, and other, other ways of, getting the information about Terry's case and this issue in general. So um, you know, that's the one thing I would say. But most importantly, uh, as a, because of what happened with Terry, I would tell people they need heroic advocates. They need to find someone, a healthcare surrogate that's going to, if they ever do become incapacitated, unable to speak for themselves, they need someone to stand in that's going to fight for them if, if it's needed. I mean, uh, it, it, it doesn't always rise to that level or um, you may never find yourself in, in a situation where you're battling a hospital or an ethics committee, but but you really need someone that, that understands your um your 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 values and if you're Catholic or whatever denomination you are that that can step in and, and fight for your um fight for you if you're ever in that type of situation. So one thing we kind of we really push is is to make sure you have a heroic advocate if you ever need one. Well, Bobby, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and tell Terry's story. Well, you're welcome. And, and again, we have a crisis lifeline 24-7. If you go to our website, you can, there's a number you can call. And if you're ever in a situation, we'll do whatever we can. These are resources to help you. And even if you just have basic questions about these issues. But, but thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate your time today. And um, it was good talking to you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Terry Shivo's brother, Bobby Schindler. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. If you want to listen to previous podcasts, you can head over to LifeSiteNews.com, where you'll also find opinion commentary and nonstop news updates from the front lines of the culture wars. Thank you so much for joining us this week, and we really do hope that you'll join us again next week. If you want to find the podcast, again, head to LifeSiteNews.com, or you can find it on any of the podcast hosting platforms. Thanks again so much. Bye for now.